So that brings us to this morning's lesson, the promised kingdom. So I want to start by us reading together Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 3 through 6 together. Let me have someone read verses 3 through 6 for us in Ephesians 1. Anthony, thank you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as we so before the foundation of the world, <coughs> holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons in Jesus Christ, according to the promise of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, he has based, he has blessed us in the beloved. Thank you. <coughs> So Ephesians 1 really is uh, mind-blowing uh, in its scope and what it's communicating to us because it takes us from eternity to eternity, from before the creation of the world to the new heavens and new earth. The Apostle Paul gives us this insight into the eternal plan of God. So as we've been talking about sin and death and all these things, we have to remember that God is not defeated by the fall. And the fall didn't surprise God. God is uh, omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's omnipotent, all-powerful, he's sovereign. Uh, nothing is outside of God's reign and scope, right? So, it's, so he's not caught off guard by this. <clears throat> before the disobedience of Adam and Eve, before uh, they or anything else even existed, God had determined from eternity to call a people to himself through his son, Jesus, and to restore everything under him. Before the fall, before creation. And this was as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We see that in Ephesians 1.10. Before anything was ever created, God divinely decreed purpose to save a people. Uh, to, uh, he, they were predestined unto sonship in the Son to save them and to bring them to himself. Reformed theologians in the 17th century refer to this as the covenant of redemption. Or you may hear it referred to by its Latin name, some of you maybe, Pactum Salutis. So Richard Moeller, he's a reformed um, his, his historical theologian. He defines the pactum salutis, or the covenant of redemption, as a pretemporal, that means before time, intra-Trinitarian, within the Trinity, agreement of the Father, Son, the Father and the Son concerning the covenant of grace and its ratification in and through the work of the Son incarnate. Now that sounds like a very technical <laughs> definition, and you probably missed some of that, but a shorter and maybe less technical way to define it is a pact between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with the purpose of redeeming God's elect. A pact between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit with the purpose of redeeming God's elect. Richard Barcellus says this concerning the covenant of redemption. He says, this is a pretemporal, again, that's just another way of saying before time, a pretemporal sorry, I got lost my place. A pretemporal appointment to a certain end which is reflective of the divine pactum because it is through the Son. According to Ephesians 1:5. He goes on to say, the Father elects in the Son and predestines those elected unto sonship <clears throat> through the Son. And he does both for the before the foundation of the world in virtue of the Son's covenanted obedience. And it's God the Holy Spirit who purposes to apply the benefits earned by the Son to the elect and unites them with the Son forever. And so we say that the covenant of redemption is a intra-Trinitarian covenant between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? <laughs> what does it matter? 
consider that before the fall, before Adam and Eve were created, before any sin, before Satan, before the garden, before Noah, before the spread of sin, the elect were predestined in Christ unto sonship. Before this, before any of this, before anything was created, you were predestined unto sonship. You were elected unto salvation by God's divine decree. This is extremely encouraging. You will not be kicked out of the kingdom. You were elected unto sonship. And this also tells us that it was not you. You didn't save yourself and put yourself in the kingdom. You were saved, predestined in the Son, sealed by the Spirit in time and space unto union, glorification, and your union with Christ. Amen. 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 <laughs> you didn't save yourself. You can't keep yourself saved. All of this took place within the Trinity, this covenant of redemption before anything was even created, before Time was created. Time is a creature. It's created by God. Before any of this, you were predestined in the Son. That's the thing that we need to remember when we're at Amen. our lowest. When we're at our lowest, Amen. to remember that. Amen. Be in awe and stay in awe. Amen. And we are sealed by the Spirit. We bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We're being sanctified. All of these realities are true. But that's why this is important. That's why it, it matters. <clears throat> and so, naturally, I think probably for some of you, that leads us to the next, this next question. You may ask, if God planned to do all that before anything was created, why did God allow Adam and Eve to fall in the garden? That's usually the, naturally the next question. And it's a common question. Why didn't he just preserve any, everything from the beginning um, from being corrupted from the very beginning. Why allow the fall and all of this sin and death and wickedness and corruption? <clears throat> Why allow the fall to happen in the first place? That's a very common question for believers and non-believers alike. I think that's sort of just naturally the next question. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here because I do have a focus. I have a target for this class. But... I think our confession is helpful in providing an answer to this question. And I think the confession builds off of scripture, which is why we are, we hold to the confession. We are Reformed Baptist Church. The 1689 is our confession of faith. And it's helpful, <laughs> so you should use it. Chapter six, section one of the fall of mankind, sin and its punishment says this. Now remember, we're answering the question, why does God allow the fall in the first place? We're predestined unto sonship and the son, right? Redemption, purposed, purchased, and applied. A triune God, redeeming a people for himself. If all this is true, why does God allow the fall in the first place? Chapter 6, section 1, of the fall of mankind, sin and its punishment. The 689 says this. God created humanity upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. Yet they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, and then Eve seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating of the forbidden fruit. God was pleased. Is what I want you to hear. God was pleased in keeping with his wise and holy counsel to permit this act. Why? Because he had purpose to direct it for his own glory. Why did God allow the fall to happen? It was for the manifestation of the glory of the triune God and the display of his wisdom, power, faithfulness, and holiness. Again, Ephesians 1, 5 to 6a, 
He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? Verse 6a, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the answer. The manifestation of the glory of the triune God. That answer may not be satisfactory to some people. Some Christians struggle with that answer. But that is the answer that the Bible gives us. The fall was permitted, ultimately, to the end of the glory, the triune God. So ultimately, we know that God is in control. And this gives us a certain hope that one day the horrific, widespread, and universal consequences of our rebellion against him will be undone. As a result, he will be honored and glorified. And so Paul stresses that this is why he decided to rescue the world for the praise of his glorious grace. We see in Ephesians 1.6 for the praise of his glory. We see in Ephesians 1.12 and 1.14. So his primary aim was not first and foremost to make us happy. Although (laughs) that is absolutely a natural and intentional result of the decree being fulfilled, that we would be holy and happy. But above all, it's the manifestation of the glory of God for the sake of his holy name. <clears throat> now, I said earlier that to some that that answer is not satisfactory. And I've talked to believers or unbelievers and given that answer. Well, he wanted to glorify himself. <laughs> and the only category they have for that is man wanting to glorify himself. And so they take God they put him in a category of man and they say that sounds egotistical. Is God self-centered? <laughs> can, can God be self-centered? That's a question. <laughs> Is he arrogant or idolatrous and glorifying himself or commanding us to worship none other than himself? Is that possible? No, <laughs> it's not. By no means, not at all. And wanting his post-fall world to praise him, God is not looking for an ego boost. God is restoring all things to the way that they should be. Matter of fact, to worship anything created by God, to worship anything not God, is to worship a creature. Anything not God is created by God and therefore a creature. This is idolatry. God would be an idolater if he allowed us to worship anything less than himself. Because anything not God is created in a creature. God would be an idolater if he allowed us to worship anything less than himself. But the worship of the triune God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them is man's chief end. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) It should. Our Baptist catechism is helpful here. Again, I'm going to pull out my Baptist, my catechism so I can... uh, It's helpful. 1689 has a Baptist catechism in the back. Extremely helpful. (laughs) Use it. I keep pushing that, but extremely helpful. Our Baptist catechism, question one. Who is the first and best of beings? This is a test for y'all. Who is the first and best of beings? Answer. Yes. Thank you. That was like in unison. I love it. God is the first and best of beings. Question two. What is the chief end of man? Answer. Amen. So y'all have been catechized. Sweet. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So God permitted the fall of Adam and Eve for his own glory that he would be worshipped and enjoyed forever. That's the answer. Okay. So let's transition. I wanted to start there to sort of reorient our minds, put our minds in the right place as we continue to think through uh, this idea of kingdom and specifically this morning, amazing grace. So up until this point, so Genesis 1 and 2, it's creation, good, 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 beautiful, perfect scene. Genesis 3, um, very good, um, Adam and Eve are created, and then the fall happens and Beautiful, good, 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 very good. There's this scene of a fall, it's corruption, bad. And then from that point on, sin. But 
in the midst of that sin and judgment, there's this theme of grace. And that's what I want to look at this morning, this theme of grace. So last week we noticed this theme of sin and death, uh, death being the judgment for that sin, running through the early chapters of Genesis. But there is a third theme too, and that's, and what is that theme? It's the theme of grace. Human sin is met with God's judgment, but he also shows great mercy. So where do we see this? Let's go from Ephesians in the back of the Bible to Genesis in the front of your Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So again, we're tracing the theme. So our sort of meta-narrative is, that's Albert Moeller's term, I like it. Our meta-narrative is this this theme, we're tracing theme in scripture, under that umbrella of, I'm sorry, we're tracing kingdom as the theme, under that umbrella of kingdom, uh, we've been looking at sin, death, and judgment, and there's a sub-point under that, which is the theme of grace in the midst of that sin, death, and judgment. So, Genesis 3.15. I'll read it and then talk about it for a little bit. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God speaking to the serpent there. So Adam and Eve's disobedience results in their banishment from the garden. They're exiled. They're sent out of the garden when they sin. But Genesis 3 is not all gloom and doom. Despite their sin, God still loves them. He comes looking for them and then provides clothes for them to hide their nakedness. See that in verse 21. His love is seen above all in a promise that he makes while judging the serpent, which I just read. So this promise here, this I will put enmity enmity between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, or he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is only a hint, but it's a very encouraging hint. God seems to be pointing to a time in the future when the son of Eve, a human being, will destroy the evil one. So it's a veiled prophecy of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospel in seed form spoken to Adam and Eve. The sin and death that, the, that our first parents brought upon creation, that, our, that the first Adam, I'm sorry, brought upon creation, the second Adam would redeem and restore in the new creation. It's the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the offspring of Eve, who would defeat Satan through his death on the cross and will return to complete and consummate all things. So Paul points back to Genesis 3.15 when he tells us in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So Paul was familiar with the Old Testament and this promise of the offspring of the woman. So I mentioned that grace is also a theme we see in the early chapters of Genesis. Where do we see it again? Uh, Let's go back to Cain and Abel, or 4 to Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. So we're tracing grace in the midst of judgment, sin and judgment. After killing Abel, Cain is driven into exile. So Adam and Eve were exiled, in, in the same way Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden after transgressing the law given to them. They were put out of the garden. So here you see Cain exiled from the land that he was dwelling in. And we saw this last week. He was sent out of the land when he killed Abel. So where's the grace theme here? Well, God doesn't completely abandon Cain, but he places a positive mark on Cain and promises that anyone who kills him will himself be judged. Now, I'm not reading these chunks of scripture as I go through these because we looked, at, we looked at them in detail last week. But what I'm trying to bring out is the grace theme in these verses. Okay, so Cain kills Abel. He's judged for that sin by, putting, by being exiled from the place he was. God exiles Cain, but the grace is that he gives Cain a mark and says, you see this mark on Cain? Anyone who kills him... I put this mark on him. Anyone who kills him, uh, the same that they did to Cain will happen to them. If they kill Cain, I will kill them. Essentially is what the Lord says. And so Cain's life is preserved. Okay. 
So moving through Genesis, let's continue in this quick trek because um, I want to get to the Noahic covenant. That's what we're focusing on today. Last week, we looked at Genesis 5 and the theme of death and mortality. And I'm just going to read Genesis 5 for us really quick. Genesis 5, verses 5 to 19. <clears throat> or I'll read a portion of it. Um, starting at verse 5. Thus all the days of Adam, all the days that Adam lived were 930, 930 years, and he died. Um, verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Now I'm just going to jump down to the verses that I'm trying to emphasize. Verse 11, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Verse 14, thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Verse 17, thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Verse 20, thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. So judgment for sin. And he died and he died and he died. <clears throat> so the theme of mortality is clear after the fall. Okay, let's jump down to verse 24. The question is, where's the grace in this? I said there's a theme of grace. Where is it? Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. So prior to that, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Verse 24 says, Enosh walked, Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. So, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he was not, for God took him. What in the world is going on there? <laughs> so the genealogy of chapter five underlines how the punishment of death faces each generation. But the depressing refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, is missing from verse 24. It's different. And he was not. The account of every other life ends with those words, and he died, but Enoch's is different. <clears throat> I want to read something from Nehemiah Cox as he considers this distinction in, in Enoch after this theme, and he died, and he died, and he died. So Nehemiah Cox is someone you should be familiar with. Um, he is um, was a Puritan, uh, reformed, had issues with the, uh, the uh, polity, government, church government of the national church, um, broke off and became one of the, our forefathers <laughs> as reformed Baptists. He contributed heavily to the 1644 confession, the first one, and to the 1689 confession, and had many writings before and in between those. So he's someone, someone that you should probably be familiar with. Nehemiah Cox, in his book, uh, Covenant Theology, From Adam to Christ, says this, as we're thinking about Enoch, who was not. He says, Enoch in the seventh generation was translated that he should not see death. And they had, as they had seen, uh, I'm sorry, as they had seen the fruit of the curse exemplified in Adam's death, he says, so they saw that life which promises gives, I'm sorry, so they saw that life which the promise gives exemplified in Enoch's translation. So death, 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 then he died, then he died, then he died. Cox says, in Enoch, they saw life. They saw something different. He is the one who walked with God before he was translated, or as the apostle gives it, had this testimony that he pleased God. And the Hebrew phrase, Cox says, is used in Genesis 5.22, not only signifies integrity and eminent holiness in a private capacity, but also is often used for a pleasing administration of office before God. In this respect, he is a special figure of Christ and, is, and, and, and his translation prefigures Christ entering into heaven as a forerunner. And so he's saying there's something unique going on here. 
in this, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then Enoch, and he was not. So the idea here is that there's hope that even in a fallen world, it's possible to know God and escape the penalty of death. So I said a couple weeks ago that sin had a 100% kill rate. Um, I guess it's more like a 99.9 kill rate. Or maybe 98% because all those who are alive when Christ returns will be taken up. But here is a picture that one can escape the penalty of death um, by faith and belief in the promise. Okay, let me move on. So I want to talk a bit about covenants, um, God's covenants with man. We talked about the infra-Trinitarian covenant, the covenant of redemption. But I want to talk about God's covenant with man. So covenant is one of the most important concepts in the Bible. And it's one of the most important concepts in biblical theology, which we're trying to do as we walk through scripture. Covenant is even found in our names for the parts of scripture. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament is another word for covenant. The old covenant, new covenant. And the word covenant is seen often through scripture, 285 times in the Old Testament, 33 times in the New Testament. So it's, this is not a foreign concept or word in scripture. So the question here is, what is a covenant? The term covenant has been defined many different ways with many different nuances, but you can define covenant as a solemn commitment, a formal definition of relationship between two parties. God commits himself to his people by making binding promises. Sometimes these promises are unilateral, where God promises an act unconditionally. And you see that in the Noahic covenant. But often biblical covenants are bilateral, involving both parties, and they're often conditional. God expects his people to make their own promises and to obey them and obey him. And you see that in the Mosaic covenant. So these covenants are sealed in blood and are given with a sign or visible word. So I'm going to just do a quick overview of the covenants we see in Scripture and then focus in on the Noahic covenant. <clears throat> so the Bible has a number of covenants. Some may have a longer and shorter list of these covenants. Uh, some may even define these covenants differently. But I think uh, that most um, in the Reformed tradition would agree with this list that I have. First, <clears throat> so we're, we're thinking about God's covenants with man. God's covenants with man. <clears throat> I'll give the title, a brief definition, and then the sign associated with that covenant. The Adamic covenant, or the covenant of creation. We see that Hosea 6, 7, although not explicitly said in Genesis. Um, definition, Adam is in covenant with God by virtue of being created by God. Adam had the moral law written on his conscience as one who is the image of God, but Adam is also given a positive law not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The sign of that covenant was a tree. The Noahic covenant, Genesis 8, 9, God makes a unilateral covenant to preserve his creation and never again to destroy it by flood. The sign of that covenant was a rainbow. The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God promises to raise up a great nation from Abraham's descendants and give them a land to live in. He will bless them, and through them the whole world will be blessed. The sign of that covenant was circumcision. The Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 34. God promises the Israelites that they will be his special people. They, in return, are commanded to obey his law. The sign of that covenant was the Sabbath, the promise of shalom, renewal of creation and redemption. The Davidic Covenant, 1 Samuel 17. God promises to King David, one who will sit on his throne forever. The sign of that covenant is throne. The new covenant or covenant of grace. The Israelites break their covenant obligations to God and God has to judge them. But he promises through the, prophetic Jer through, through the prophet Jeremiah a new and better covenant, which leads to a changed heart. A universal covenant, uh, I'm sorry, universal knowledge of God and complete forgiveness. Jesus' death on the cross inaugurates this new covenant. The sign of that covenant is baptism. So, quick view, I know, quick, quick overview, <clears throat> quick list. Is there 
yes, I can. And I will give you a helpful resource. I'm glad you asked, Amber, because I happen to have with me <laughs> Nehemiah Cox's Covenant Theology from Adam to Christ. A really helpful book. Um, also, um, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. I'm trying to remember his name now. Um, Van, uh, Van Dorn. What's his name? Robert Van Dorn. Richard Van Dorn. No. Okay. I'll, I'll talk about it in a little bit. I'm trying to think of the Douglas Van Dorn. That's what it is. Douglas Van Dorn's uh, Covenant Theology, a Reformed Baptist primer, is also, is also very helpful. Um, and so I'm, these are encouraged because they're Covenant Theology from a Reformed Baptist perspective. Um, because there are nuances that could sort of um, uh, determine how we think about God's relationship with these covenants to man. But those are two good books. And there are many, many others, <laughs> many others. Um, and I can give you a list afterwards if you're interested. Okay, the Noahic Covenant. <clears throat> so we're going to jump back to the Noahic Covenant and read Genesis 6, 5 to 8. And then we're going to walk through the Noahic Covenant. This is where I intended to spend the portion of our time. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I created from the face of the earth man and animals and creepy things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made man. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So Genesis 6, 8 is best translated as Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We were just told that all people are sinful in Genesis 6, 5, and that included Noah. But God chose him and his family to be recipients of grace and salvation that was physical and temporal for his family and spiritual and eternal for Noah. God said, I will make a covenant with him and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. Again. Covenant is a very important word in the Bible. It speaks of a binding agreement. <clears throat> so God promises Noah that he will rescue his family from the flood and the ark. Noah believes God. God acts on his word and is saved. I'm sorry, Noah, Noah believes God. Noah acts on his word and is saved when the water rises. This is a pre-flood covenant with Noah. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes, how? By faith. <clears throat> Douglas Van Dorn, author of Covenant Theology, which I just mentioned, a Reformed Baptist primer, says this, because of this faith and the saving nature of the covenant in Genesis 6, he, Noah, was saved, Noah and his family, was saved through water. We rightly identify Noah here as the recipient of grace. Being saved from the flood and the ark is typological of being saved by Jesus Christ from the coming eternal wrath of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. Thus it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord in Genesis 6, 8. The word favor is better translated as grace. For he first he finds grace, then he is viewed as righteous, blameless, and walks with God. Noah, God saved Noah spiritually and then saved Noah physically. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> I could, let me see how much I have left. I'm going to say a little more about that. <laughs> so salvation, the salvation of Noah and his family, I mentioned before, there's a temporal and physical salvation, then there's a spiritual and eternal salvation. Some would look at this and say that the saving of Noah um, 
constitutes in the same way the saving of his family. So by them being family, uh, family with Noah, Noah is a representative for that family, therefore the whole family is saved along with Noah. We want to make a distinction there. The family is saved along with Noah, but there's a difference in this physical and temporal salvation. By salvation, salvation from a flood, the, the scripture uses the word for salvation in many different ways. His family is saved from, from destruction, from the flood, but the Bible speaks of Noah of having believed God in faith and being saved. So Noah was saved temporally and spiritually. His family was saved temporally, physically, as far as the data that the Bible gives us. Okay? So we don't want to go beyond that. <clears throat> okay. We got a few more minutes here. So let's uh, transition to the, uh, another covenant. Well, the same covenant just expanded. When the floodwaters receded, God makes another promise. It's really the same promise expanded. The benefits are expressed generally, then specifically. God says, I will establish my covenant with you, begin to Noah, never again will all life be cut off from the waters of uh, the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is the same covenant, post-flood covenant. Where do we see that? Genesis chapter 9, verse 11 to 17. So jump over to Genesis chapter 9. And I'm going to read 11 to 17 for us. <laughs> verse 11, it says, I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all, for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant not that God forgot, but remember is a way of saying that uh, the time has been fulfilled. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of, of, of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between me and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So <clears throat> I'm going to talk, I'm going to sort of flesh this out a little bit. Though human sin continues, yet God declares his commitment to creation. This is a covenant of preservation. The Noahic covenant is a covenant of preservation. Matter of fact, God says that all things will continue in a normative, predictive pattern until God fulfills his promise of sending the offspring of Eve to crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 8, 21 to 22 says, And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. So let, let me start back at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar. He comes out of the ark. The waters recede. He comes out of the ark. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, Heat and cold, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. All things will continue in a predictive and normative pattern for the preservation of the world as God or until God fulfills his promise to send the offspring of Eve. What's the last verse of your section? Uh, verse 22, uh, Genesis 8, 22. <clears throat> and so, 
What we see here is that God is not finished with his world. He has determined to fulfill his eternal plan. The flood was an undoing of the created order, but it was followed by a gracious restoration, a new start, so to speak. The fact is underlined, that fact is underlined by the repetition of phrases from the creation account in God's words after the flood. Genesis 1, verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. Genesis 9, verse 1, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Genesis 1, verse 28, subdue the earth, rule over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 9, verse 2, the fear and dread of you will be upon all the beasts of the earth. Genesis 1, verse 29, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth for food. Genesis 9, verse 3, everything that lives and moves will be good for you. So, there is continuity, commonality, continuity, and discontinuity in what we see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. But, again... The Lord is not done with the earth. He's not done with man. He purposes to fulfill his promise to send the offspring of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. <clears throat> I want to read again from um, Nehemiah Cox's uh, covenant theology. <clears throat> he says this. <clears throat> The particular benefits and blessings given to mankind by this covenant were, and the Noahic covenant, were, one, fruitfulness, um, fruitfulness of the replenishing of the earth, two, dominion over the creatures and the, and the free use of them for food, so they can eat, eat meat now, eat food now, animals, three, and assurance that the judgment which they had now escaped should not be repeated. This was given even though later generations were likely to prove as wicked as those that had gone before them, seeing that the same root and spring of corruption remained in them, and the rainbow was appointed to be a visible sign and token of the covenant. So ultimately, the flood was a universal judgment against sin, and the flood dealt with sin on the earth, but it didn't deal with the sin in the heart, right? So there was still a solution needed to the sin in the heart. The Lord judged sin as holy and righteous, which he must do, but the solution to the sin in the heart is in the offspring of Eve, who had crushed the head of the serpent. It is through him that ultimate redemption is found. The flood, there was salvation in Noah and his family on the ark, Uh, pointing to the redemption that is found in Christ, the ark of the elect, right? So there there was temporal salvation, but it's pointing to that eternal salvation that is found in Christ. And then God puts a bow, uh, a rainbow, or a bow, I should say, in the clouds. The Bible doesn't really have a a word for rainbow. He puts a bow in the clouds, And the Bible says when this bow appears, when God sees this bow, he will remember his covenant. So something spoken to the descendants, the the posterity of Noah, when this bow is seen, it says that God will not destroy or cleanse, flood the earth as he did before. There will be a cleansing of the earth, not by water, but by fire, scripture says. And Something else you notice, just a few observations here. This wasn't a destruction of the earth. It was a cleansing of the earth. It wasn't um, annihilation. (laughs) It was cleansing. There will be another cleansing, which shows us that the earth will not be destroyed. It's not going to blow up and then the Lord creates another one. Uh, Heaven is here. (laughs) It's a cleansing of the earth where... The uh, temple, uh, the Garden of Eden, this temple, this place of God's special presence is expanded and the whole earth becomes that place of God's special presence. Another observation concerning the bow. When we go outside and we see a bow, a rainbow, um, and we see these 
different colors that God in his divine providence and through just creation has allowed us to see. And it's, it's through uh, these colors and whatever science is associated with that that causes those colors to appear in the sky. God did it. It's a bow. That bow tells us that the Lord, it tells us two things. The Lord will not destroy the earth again by flood, or he will not cleanse the earth again by flood. But it also tells us that he will cleanse the earth again by fire. The bow is the preservation of life until the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Eve, though he has come, he's not, it's not, everything hasn't been consummated. He has to come again, right? That's a part of the redemption. The earth is being preserved until he comes again. So the bow reminds us he's coming back. The Lord will, will fulfill his promise. It's interesting that the LGBTQ and the other letters, I don't, I don't remember them all right now, um, that they, they, they look at the bow and they have taken the bow as a sign of their stance, uh, this um, gross display, this deep display of immorality and wickedness. And they wave the bow. And they say, this is our pride. And they walk through the streets waving the bow. <clears throat> you can't do anything to us. You can't judge us, right? This is our freedom. This is our liberty. And they wave the bow as almost this sign of protection <laughs> against Christians that you, you can't touch us, you know? And what's interesting is, I think, in part, the way they're using the bow is accurate. They wave it and say, you can't touch us. You can't judge us. We say that bow is a sign that the Lord is preserving the earth. May his kindness lead you to repentance. And yes, <laughs> right now you're being spared. Although I think them being turned over to the homosexuality is a judgment. I'm talking about destruction, final destruction. Right now you're being spared. <laughs> The bow is God's promise that he is not going to flood the earth, but there's a promise that there will be a cleansing again. So, yes, right now you're being the earth is being preserved. God has been gracious towards you. May his kindness lead you to repentance. Wave it. You're being spared. Yes. But a time is coming where the Lord will fulfill his promise. And on that day, we see clearly in Revelations, men will call for the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the lamb. Wave your bow. The earth is being preserved. <laughs> You're being spared. But not always. Not eternally. Not forever. Uh, for the Lord will consummate all things in the sun. And that time is coming and the bow is a reminder of that. So, having had this promise, God puts a sign in the sky this bow, whenever he sees it uh, in the future, Noah, he will be reminded of the Lord's promise to preserve creation until he sins and consummates all things through the offspring of the woman Eve. And whenever we see it, we ought to take comfort. God will fulfill his promise. And he condescends to us and gives us a visible word, something that reminds us of what he said. And it should be that for us, an encouragement, a visible word of what God has spoken. Have you noticed the fascination the world has with fire? Hmm. A lot of places you have a celebration of fire. Yeah. You know, it's just this great thing of attraction to it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, there will, that does seem to be the case. It's. I like playing with fire. <laughs> or I did. I did. I did. <laughs> That's not how I went in my Sunday school class. Anybody else got a question? Yeah, the Lord, uh, he found favor with the Lord. He found grace with the Lord. Now, walking with God is a display of what was happening, what happened internally, um, that he was saved, I'd say. Yep. Is that accurate to... Absolutely. Okay, so at that 
Amen. Amen. Yes. Yeah. Right. Amen. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where, remember, uh, he's reminding us of where our class started, right? The covenant of redemption, pactum salutis, this inter-Trinitarian covenant, which should be encouraging for us um, and that we will make it to the end because the Lord has preserved us and will bring us to the end in himself. So with that, let me pray. I'm sorry I have gone over a little, but um, I'll pray and then you guys are dismissed into uh, the sanctuary for corporate worship together. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, <clears throat> we thank you, our triune God, for redemption, our redemption, purposed, purchased, and applied. We thank you, Father, for predestining us unto sonship in the Son. We thank you, Jesus, second person of the Trinity, for accomplishing redemption for us in your purpose, in your person, and work. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying the redemption that the Son accomplished and purchased for us and sealing us with the reality or looking to uh, the end with the reality that Christ has purchased for us and the Father has predestined us. We are now sealed and unto the destination, the end of eternal life. All these things are such encouragements for us. May we not go too quickly past them or overlook them or think that they are um, beyond our scope of study or meditation. May we sit and think upon these things, the covenant of redemption and the new covenant and those subservient covenants as they are moving towards the end of the redemption through what you have divinely decreed Lord, we are grateful. Thank you for your kindness. May you now bless us as we go into the sanctuary to hear the word preached and take the Lord's Supper where grace is served to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.